Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to Golf Talk Live. I'm your host, Ted Odorico, broadcasting live every Thursday, 6 to 8 p.m. Central, from Panama City Beach, Florida, home of the world's most beautiful beaches. I want to take this opportunity to thank everyone for joining me on my weekly broadcast. Every week, I'll feature some of the best instructors, coaches, authors, and entrepreneurs in the golf business today. I begin with a great discussion on Coach's Corner, followed by an insightful interview with my special guest. So let's get started by introducing tonight's Coach's Corner panel. All right, good evening, everybody, and once again, thank you and welcome to Golf Talk Live. I'm your host, Ted Odorico. And I've got a great show for you tonight. We're going to be starting off, as mentioned, uh, with another great discussion on the Coach's Corner panel. And I'm going to bring up the guys here in just a minute. And then a little bit later on, I'm going to be joined by a very special guest, uh, first time on the show. And he's also going to throw his hat in the ring uh, in the coming weeks uh, in the Coach's Corner uh, segment as well as being a special guest tonight. And, of course, I'm talking about Alex Fisher. Uh, he's a PJ Director of Instruction at the Glacier Club and also uh, Camelback, which is a, a JW Marriott uh, uh, track out in uh, Arizona. So he's going to be joining me on the second half of the show. We're going to talk a little bit about some of the things that he's doing and helping to grow the game. And, um, and then, as I said, we're going to start things off here with the panel discussion. Before I bring the guys out, let me just remind everybody that Golf Talk Live is brought to you by the iGolf Sports Network uh, and also Golf Tips Magazine. iGolf Sports is a live stream broadcast and media production company providing uh, top quality programming designed to attract the golfing enthusiast, namely you. And uh, Golf Tips Magazine, the game's most in-depth instruction magazine, offering insightful reviews on the latest equipment, tips from top PGA and LPGA teacher professionals, all designed to help improve your game from tee to green. So subscribe today at golftipsmag.com. Um, just a quick note, uh, the November-December issue uh, is on its way to the printer and should be heading out here uh, in uh, the coming weeks. I'll keep you posted. Uh, but don't forget the uh, September-October issue is currently at newsstands. It went on uh, and is available at uh, virtually all newsstands uh, around the country and in Canada. And uh, some great places here in the U.S. if you want to go is if you go to your local Barnes & Noble, uh, you can find them on newsstands there. And uh, also Books a Million are some of the, the larger uh, locations. And also Publix, uh, you can find them at most public stores as well, and Kroger's and some of the other big uh, retail chains as well. So uh, check it out. That went on uh, the newsstands actually August 4th. So it's currently out there, and you'll know it when you see it because it's got a great uh, photo from the 1978 Open Championship with, of course, the winner of that championship, Mr. Jack Nicholas. So you'll see that as well, and a great story in there about him. Um, but check it out, available now at newsstands. Uh, or if you want to subscribe, again, go to golftipsmag.com, and you can get six issues for $14.97. It's a great deal. All right, as I mentioned, we've got the Coach's Corner panel. Uh, first up is a gentleman that was actually supposed to be on last week and had to switch out with another uh, chap. And, of course, I'm talking about John Hughes, a PGA Master Professional, and he's the uh, was the honorary president of the North Florida PGA section, uh, also a recipient of the 2013 PGA of America Horton Smith Award, uh, and he's also now a senior editor as well as the Golf Tips Magazine top 25 instructor and a Golf Tip Advisory staff member uh, for Golf Tips Magazine. So I'm always glad to have John. 
Uh, Pete Buchanan, <clears throat> excuse me, is the uh, also joining him tonight, and that he is the founder and director of instruction and owner of Plain Simple Golf LLC. Uh, Plain Simple Golf uh, houses the Plain Simple Golf Circuit and Swing re- uh, Simple Swing Repeater Training Brace. And uh, Pete has been teaching uh, this great game for 30 plus years. A couple of great professionals have been on the show many, many times. Always glad to have these guys on. So, uh, Pete and John, uh, welcome back to uh, Coach's Corner. Thanks, Ted. It's good to be here. Thanks, Ted. All right, guys. I appreciate it very much, as always. And uh, we're going to have a great discussion tonight. So for those of you out there, if you're a beginning golfer and don't want to get bogged down with your typical golf tips, uh, which quite often can be aimed at some of the better players or more advanced golfers, and you're just looking to find a few simple ideas that might help you out in the golf course, uh, then you've come to the right place. And we've got a few of them here. We're going to touch on uh, some of the areas, as an example, preparing for the round, uh, how to hit it a little bit further, uh, always wanting to get a little more distance, uh, how to make good club choices uh, while you're out there, some common swing flaws and fixes, uh, some shots around the green. And if we have time, we might even dabble a little bit in the mental game. So, John, I'm going to start with you. Uh, and this is a question we often hear and that is, how can I get better results from my practice? You know, we talk about this quite often on the show, practicing with the purpose. Um, but a lot of folks just get out there and they practice, they hit balls, they rake a few more over and hit a few more and kind of just go through the bag because that's what they've always heard and been told. Um, but what do you do or how do you help your students get the most out of their practice sessions? Great question. Again, thanks, Ted. Always a fantastic opportunity to be on the show. Pete, looking forward to a really good discussion, as we always do. Uh, It it is a common question, and the common answer I give is, are you going through your practice routine, your your pre-shot routine, while you're practicing? Is that the same as what you do out on the golf course? Because to me, that's the bridge between the two islands. Uh, a lot of times people think it's a one-way street to go from, and it's not. It's a, it's a cycle. Uh, the thing that holds it all together is your pre-shot routine. There should be a post-shot evaluation as well. We're getting into a little bit of the mental there, but I won't touch on it too deeply. But that's what creates the cycle. When you are raking and hitting, you're practicing at a tempo, that's not representative of the same tempo you play. The pre-shot routine sets the tempo for everything. Not only your swing, it sets your tempo for decision-making, sets your tempo for club selection, sets your decision-making based on how you're envisioning a shot. And these are all things that if you just add another 10 to 15 seconds, stand behind the ball and I hate to say it, just go through the motions to begin with. You're going to find that you will most likely improve by a couple of shots simply because it's more representative of the tempo at which you play. But what you're going to discover out on the golf course is you'll be a little bit more aware of the actual shots you're hitting. Uh, very much like you're probably aware of a shot on the range that you don't hit very well. The difference 
your circumstances you have to deal with out on the golf course, not only the score, but how are you going to make the score happen? Range, no <clears> circumstances. <throat> Go out, just use, use a pre-shot routine. It's easy to implement. You do it anyway on the golf course. Why not do it on the practice range? You'll be very surprised how quickly you build the bridge from one aspect to the other. It, great points, John. And I, I think, too, just to, to really emphasize the difference here, this is where you're going to work on, uh, obviously, your, your fundamentals. You want to practice um, you know, making sure your grip is sound, uh, your, your posture and your ball positions are, are, are up to snuff, and also um, that you're swinging in balance. And it's okay to make some changes here uh, during a, a full-blown practice session if there's things that your coach or your teaching pro that you've been working with has given you, this is the time to be working on things um, and making any, you know, tweaks and adjustments uh, during a practice session. Um, And as John pointed out, I think it's a good idea as well. Uh, In fact, an excellent idea to simulate some of the holes you might be playing. If you're playing on a course you've never been on before, it's a little more difficult, um, but you can imagine maybe your home course, um, and just imagine that you're playing some of the, the first few holes there, just to give you an idea of visualization. So, you know, line up and hit as though you're hitting off the tee uh, and hitting your drive. And then, you know, uh, imagine what your second shot would be and aim uh, and use the appropriate club for that particular shot um, and go through that way as opposed to just sort of raking and hitting, you know, a bunch of balls for each club. I mean, that's okay, uh, you know, just to, to get warmed up a little bit, but not... Uh, during a full-blown practice session. And conversely, Pete, which brings me to this other point, is how should I warm up before a round of golf? We don't want to do uh, really what John talked about because we're not there. Um, some cases, we, you know, depending on when we get to the golf course, we may only have 20 to 30 minutes before our tee time. Um, we don't want to be messing around with the golf swing. We're just there to, to get warmed up and, and, uh, and see what we've got for the day. So walk us through that. What's a good... Good warm-up routine, um, and what do you realistically feel we should be spending on that amount of time before we tee off? Well, again, Ted, thanks for having me on. John, it's it's always a pleasure Mm -hmm. uh, being on the show with you. Um, You know, you got to get yourself loose a little bit first. I know a lot of times, you know, some of them are coming from work, they're going to the golf course, they've been sitting behind a desk all day long, you know, so – you, you might want to do just some, some basic um, stretches. I have a, a little routine that takes about about three and a half, four minutes. And you start off, you know, just standing straight up and down. Uh, take one of your arms out straight, holding like a six iron straight up and down with the grip on the, on the ground. And then you're just lifting your leg up on one side of the, of the shaft and then kicking it out to the side and up and out to the side. And you do that about 10 to 15 times and then switch legs and do it again. You're warming your hips up and then, you know, some basic stretches of, you know, putting the club uh, up over your head, getting your arms stretched out. Um, You know, maybe do a a few of the little windmills where you're you're moving your arms around just to get some basic stretch in there. Get your hamstrings stretched out, which is huge because a lot of times the, the hamstrings are so tight they're they're connected to that lower spine with two small muscles and they'll tweak on it if, if uh, they're not loose enough. So you can, you know, just bend forward from the waist. And, you know, the old adage is, you know, touch your toes. But, um, you know, if, if, if you round your back over, it's pretty easy to touch your toes. So try to keep your back straight. 
Um, and as you're bending forward from the waist, stretch your hamstrings out, you know, maybe do a, a few knee lifts just to, just to loosen up the lower back. And then from there, you know, take a couple of clubs. I like to take, you know, two together and, and make some swings, make it a little bit heavier, but just take some loose, easy swings just to loosen yourself up. And then from there, um, you know, I like to start off a, a few short ones. And really what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to warm up the things that I'm going to be using. I mean, I, I know my hands mm-hmm. and arms have to be active. I knew the body needs to move. So I'm just trying to take some shots, just working on some gentle movements just to get myself loosened up. Um, you know, not anything really, really fast or really up to speed yet. Um, you'll get to your own speed when you go out on the course and play. But when you're out there just trying to warm up, you're trying to get your body ready to go, get it loosened up, get some short ones. And then, you know, as you move up, uh, I, I always start with a sand wedge and, it, it's funny because people will watch me warm up and the first 10 or 15 shots don't even leave the tee box. And they're like, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm trying to loosen up here, trying to get ready. Plus I might have a few of these when I go out to play. So I'm, I'm kind of getting myself ready to hit them and then loosen mm-hmm. yourself up more and get into, you know, work yourself up gradually to a full swing. And then the last thing I would have them do when they're warming up is, you know, hit a few drivers and, and for one reason only to see if you can use it yet. That may sound mm-hmm. funny, but if, if you're hitting it, you know, miles off line on the range, imagine when you step up on the first tee and you're nervous and now they've narrowed your landing area. So, you right. know, if that driver's going a little bit crooked on the driving range when you're warming up, then, you know, take something else with more loft on it. You know, maybe take a long iron, maybe take a hybrid, uh, fairway wood, and get something that'll get you down the golf course, get you calmed down, get your nerves unsettled, and just let you get a little bit better, you know, setting off that first tee to get you started. But I think, you know, just loosen yourself up first. And then uh, as you're starting to make some swings, you know, don't go full bore. I mean, I, I, I cringe every time when I see somebody, they dump the balls down, they pull the driver out and they just start whacking at it with that full swing. And I'm like, man, something's going to be hurting here in a minute. You know, you got to loosen yeah. yourself up and get yourself ready to go. I mean, that's, that's, you know, it's just, you know, I couldn't do it. I mean, I'm, I think of all the sports I've played over the years, my body's not to, it's, it needs some warm-up time before it can get ready to go. So I make sure I'm there plenty early to get myself loosened up and get ready to go because I can't just step up on the tee and play. It's it's uh, it, it's tough for me to do that anymore. So yeah, and and that's well said, uh, Pete. And, and you know the other thing too, uh, I just want to add. You know, I think it's a good idea not only just to to work on, um, you know, some of the muscles that you're going to be using and, and getting your swing uh, loosened up. But I think it's also good, really, you don't need to go through the whole bag uh, in your warm-up session. Use the clubs. You know, swing the clubs that you're more than likely going to be using. You know, you might have uh, a middle iron and maybe uh, your wedges that you're going to use. And, of course, uh, see what your driver's doing that day. And, and uh, you might have to dial it back, as you suggest, to a hybrid or even, you know, your fairway wood off the tee uh, if the driver's not working well. Um, but, you know, you don't need to necessarily go through your long irons and, and be hitting a bunch of shots with each club uh, because many of the clubs you may not end up using depending on your level or your handicap. So, you know, you don't have to take a lot of time warming up. Again, it's a warm up. You're just loosening up, getting warmed up. The other thing too, um, and I know you were, you know, kind of monitoring your time there, Pete, but the other thing too, that a lot of golfers make a big mistake is they get up there and they're uh, on the putting green and they're tapping in a few short putts, which is okay something that I like to do is I like to go and kind of lay out a benchmark and I like to test the speed of the greens. So what I will do 
um, is, you know, put a ball up against the fringe, you know, maybe 20, 30 yards away, and I'll leg some putts to that other ball. I'll take, you know, two or three uh, golf balls, and I'll leg some putts uh, just to test the speed of the greens because if it's a course I haven't played before, I don't know how fast the greens are. And, and you know, I might hit them out in the fairway. I might hit a bunch of uh, good approach shots, but then I get on the putting surface, and I can't putt worth beans because I don't know how fast the greens are going to be. And if you've played for any length of time, don't worry about the direction at this point. Let's just test the speed of the greens that we're playing that day. Are they slow? Are they fast? Are they somewhere in between? Um, those are things I think you need to do in your warm-up is just sort of test that speed as well. Um, but great Absolutely. answers, guys. Um, John, yeah, John, I'm going to come to you uh, on this one here. And this is really kind of a, a two-parter. Uh, everybody, you know, I'm sure that we've all had these folks come up and say, I want to hit it further. So there's really two questions here. How can I add yards to my drive? And uh, how can I improve my club head speed? We always hear is how can I swing and get faster club head speed? And obviously I want to add more yards to my drives. What's the magic formula? Is there, is there a, a secret sauce to doing this? Uh, or is it something a little bit more simpler? I like that you put it into two parts because uh, I'm a big believer it is two parts. It's not only swing speed, uh, which is getting a lot of attention right now. It's being able to hit the ball dead center of that driver or dead center of that seven iron each and every time. Uh, Bryson DeChambeau, who's part of the flight scope family as I am, is getting a lot of attention about his club head speed and how fast the ball is going. Uh, can you beef yourself up that way? Yes, you can. Uh, and that's a totally different way of training. But I'll throw this out. And Pete, uh, I love what you said. Are you ready to hit that driver? I can use that phrase with a lot of people, not only on the first tee, but during several rounds of golf over the course of months, possibly. Are you really ready to hit that driver? If it's in someone else's zip code, why are you using it? Uh, there's two ways of training. Uh, I think first and foremost, if you're athletic enough where you you have enough speed as it is right now, it's important to be able to understand how to strike the ball better, how to create a, a, a square face to your path, a square face to your target, the differentiations between – how to hit a draw and how to hit a fade and being able not necessarily to do it on command, but at least be able to do it in a consistent way where no matter what club you have in your hand, it's hitting the sweet spot 99 times out of a hundred. It doesn't have to be exact. Uh, there's no such thing as a perfect shot. I think the number that flight scope gave me, it's one in 1 billion, 1 point something billion shots are absolutely perfect. Uh, in this particular example, though, can you hit it straighter? Can you keep it in play? If you've got speed, over time, that speed will actually come to bear fruit with longer shots. Then on the other hand, there is a need to create more club head speed, whether it's restrictions of the body, you're just not strong enough, maybe there's a coordination issue, maybe there's a ground force issue, there's lots of different ways about creating to go about creating speed, and it's a totally different training regimen. It, it is totally about speed, and th there's lots of great products out there now to help you with that. But at the end of the day, what you got to realize, 
speed is in our sport is ballistic. Absolutely like firing a bullet out of a gun. We're trying to fire a ball off the face of a golf club. And the more percussion, the more ammunition, the more black powder per se behind that ball, the further it's going to go. But the tipping point is, is it in play? Uh, when you're talking about a score, it, unless you're playing the PJ Tour, your your uh, Brooks Kepka, your Dustin Johnson, who we're seeing with strokes gained uh, statistics, they can hit it 50 yards farther than everybody else and have it in the first cut of rough, and they're still going to beat you simply because they're 50 yards ahead. I think the average golfer is looking for that extra five or ten, so instead of hitting a five iron into a green, they're hitting a six, where they have a chance to go for uh, a par five and two. Well, don't try to don't try to conquer the world with speed right away. Double check that you can strike it consistently. Look at that as priority number one if you already have the speed. If you don't have the speed, but your and or you can hit it squarely, then train specifically for speed and be able to control that speed in a way where it's in play and you are gaining an advantage. Well said. You know, in another area, John, and I know you you touched on this, that a lot of people can very easily increase their club head speed without actually swinging any harder or any faster, and that is making sure they're swinging in proper sequence. I, I can't begin to say how many golfers I've seen who do not actually swing the club. They chop at the ball, and they're losing so much club head speed. It's just uh, uh, incredible. And once they learn to actually, you know, what, what's really baffling, guys, is this. It's a golf swing. It's not a golf chop. It's not a golf hack. It's a golf swing, which means and implies that you're swinging the golf club. And when you learn to swing the golf club correctly, you can generate a lot of speed with very little effort. And once you do that and make good solid contact, John, as you suggest, you're going to get those extra 5, 10, or even 15 yards, depending on the circumstances. And if you look at players, a good example, if you look like at, at an Ernie L's or even a Freddie Couples, um, when you look at their golf swings, they seem very, very effortless. Um, you know, their swing is slow and easy but they're actually, in reality, generating a lot of club head speed. Um, conversely, if you see somebody like a Nick Price who looks like he's swinging out of his shoes, um, he's not necessarily swinging any faster. That's just the way his body sequences. And a lot of golfers, especially high-handicap golfers out there, do not swing in proper sequence. So, again, they either chop or they sort of hack at the ball, and they lose a lot of accuracy, of course, but also club head speed. And, um, you know, and they fight this for, for decades because they're not swinging the club properly. So you have to look at these things. This is why it's important to work with uh, a well, uh, you know, a, a good golf instructor, whether it be a PJ or LPJ instructor, and connect with these folks out there and let them take a look at um, how you do things properly. <laughs> Pardon me. <laughs> I had to sneeze right in the middle of my sentence. So, but anyways, um, I'm going to move on. My my apologies, everybody. Um, Pete, I'm going to come to you. Um, we've already you've already sort of answered uh, as as did John this first part of uh, this question. But um, uh, so I'm going to move on to the second part. Uh, and this is really when it comes down to making good club choices. 
Um, you know, the first part is when should I use a three wood um, or even maybe a hybrid off the tee rather than a driver? Um, we sort of tackle that. Um, but another area is often uh, short people can find themselves being very short on their approach shots. How can I improve my selection? What should I be looking at um, when it comes to that? You know, because there's a lot of variances. Uh, and I'll give just a couple of examples, and maybe you can expand on it. You know, we often look at the numbers to the green. We say, okay, I've got 150 yards, but there's a lot of variables. Uh, 150 yards in a flat distance where there's no undulation in the fairway and it's just a fairly straight shot is one thing. But now if you have an elevated green uh, or a green that is well below your feet and maybe you're, you're hitting from a, a higher elevation, that 150 yards, you're going to play differently. You're not going to use the same club. So maybe you can talk about that. What should we be looking at when we're selecting a club? What are some of the factors we should be considering? Well, first and foremost, what I would always say to everybody is I would look at the distance when you're hitting it into the green to the back part of the green. And I've, I've challenged a lot of my players to go out, and I said, I want you to select a club that from the fairway you hit it over every green that you play. And they'll come back to me and say, well, I only hit it over the green once, but I hit like nine times in the middle. You know, so they're always not taking enough club. I mean, it, it's really cool when you ask somebody to say, hey, how far does your five iron go? And they're going to remember that one time that they hit it just absolutely perfect and it went 160 yards. Well, it doesn't go 160 every time. And there's different things day to day. So, you know, I would always take a golf club that's going to get me to the back of the green first and, and then go from there. And if, you, if you're still short, then take another one. Keep taking clubs until you can get it to the back of the green. And that's where I would start. And then you can dial it down from there. I think that would be something that would be able to get you started uh, making sure that you're not ended up too short. And then when you're looking at elevations, you know, if, if it's uphill to the green or downhill to the green, I always, I always like to, to say, you know, start with a factor of two. If you're going uphill, take two more. If you're going downhill, take two less. And then just try to figure out exactly how that's going to feed into that. Um, a lot of times it's a guessing game because the elevations can be uh, down, but you can have some, some, you know, heavy air and they can be up and you got some thin air. So, you know, you're always trying to do it, but I always say a factor of two. So if it's a five iron and you're going uphill, hit a three. And, and if it's a five iron and you're going downhill, hit a seven. And so just start with those. And so you can, you can figure out if it's down below you, it's going to go a little bit, you know, further than normal because it's dropping. And if it's uh, uphill, you're going to have to hit it a little bit further to, to take up for that. So, you know, I, I've always been a big, a, a big proponent of getting the ball to the backside of the green and, and, you know, one of the, the great phrases that Sam Snead always said is if you hit the ball in the middle of the green, they can't hide the pin from you. So it's, it's not a bad place to be, to be in the center, but you have to, you know, sort of check your ego in a little bit and, and you know, go out and, and uh, you know, just take the number that fits the distance that you need. Don't worry about what that number is. I mean, I play with these tour guys, and there's no way I can, I can hit it up with these guys anymore. Um, I moved up a set of tees because I, I turned that magical number. But, you know, we're standing on a part of three and we're in similar tees that, you know, it's I, I have to hit a different number. I can't fly it out there as far as those guys can anymore. So don't worry about what the number is. The distance is strictly a number. So what number do you need to get your ball to the back of the green? And start practicing getting it to the back first. And also, too, you'd be amazed that when you're on the back of the green and you turn and look down towards the front of the green, how much more of the green you actually see that you haven't seen before because not many people have been back there. 
you know, they're always in the front. Right. So now you're in the back. you got a whole different right. view. So that's a totally different look at the green. So I would always take more club to get you back there um, and, and make sure that the club that you're taking fits the situation. And what I mean by that, I had a conversation with one of my players yesterday, and he, he wanted to hit a three-wood uh, off the floor, off the fairway, and they had just cut our practice tee. And, I mean, it's always in. It's cut down, and it's, it's tee box height. And so I set the ball down. You know, the range balls have the stripes, and I set it so the stripe was perfectly even. And I said, you've got to get the center mass of the three-wood at or below the center of gravity of that ball for this to be effective. I said, set your three-wood down and see if you can do that. And he goes, oh, I can't get that underneath there. And I said, good, because that's the wrong club to hit off this line. So now go get your mm-hmm. five-wood. Oh, yeah, I can do it with this one. I said, yeah. So you would get more benefit out of your five-wood off of this lie than you would with the three because you can't contact the ball properly with the three-wood because the lie is too close to the ground. So let the lie dictate what club you're going to use and then go from there. So sometimes, you know, it's inevitable. Well, it's, it's this club, but I can't hit it because the lie is not good enough. Well, you know, do the best you can. But all things equal, good lie, club you can use. Uh, take enough to get it to the back side of the green and then go from there. Yeah, and, you know, it's interesting because, well said, Pete, um, you know, a lot of folks look at the front of the green um, when they're assessing the distance, and a lot of times where you're looking is where the ball is going to go. And, um, you know, you have to factor in there could be another 20 or 30 yards behind the front of that green, uh, depending on the shape of the green, um, or there could be, you know, some other factors involved as well. And, and understanding your club selection, uh, again, I, I think when you talk to most, um, you know, we've interviewed over the years on, on the, the shows here uh, a number of, of very highly talented uh, players, and they all say the same thing in a pro-am is 90% of the time their amateur playing partners are leaving it short. In fact, almost every time they don't take enough club. They figure, well, you know, five iron, I hit, you know, normally this amount, but that's not true. They might go out and hit 10 five irons on the range and hit one of them, you know, let's say 165 yards or 170 yards or whatever it happens to be. So they figure, okay, um, that was, I hit it really well. That's my five iron yardage. But in reality, they might be lucky if they're hitting most of them 150. So when they get faced with that 165 yard shot, they're pulling out their five iron because they think, well, just because that one time, I hit it the right distance. That's the club for me. So you've got to know your yardages for each of your clubs, and you've got to make sure that you factor in all of the conditions. If you're facing wind, if you're facing elevation changes, things like that. And they've got to be, obviously, decisions you've got to make relatively quickly, but that comes with practice and playing real course uh, you know, situations on the practice tee and using different lies and so forth, not just hitting it off a perfect lie every time. Um, and understanding, as you said, um, the type of lie you're going to have and what's the best club that's going to get the job done. John, I'm going to throw in another one here when it comes to club selection, and this is one we don't really hear a lot about, um, and maybe you can just you know, put some, some, uh, some soft points on this one here, and that is sort of your downhill, sidehill lies. Um, you know, we never or very rarely ever have a perfectly flat lie. In fact, I don't know too many even in my golf game over the years, as I'm sure you guys. And a lot of times we have the ball below our feet. It's maybe on a side hill, downhill lie where the ball's below our feet, or uh, the opposite, it's a side hill, maybe uh, an and uphill, the ball's above our feet. And again, club selection can be very, very important because 
uh, ball flight can be affected with these two different lies. So maybe you can just touch on those two as an example. I know there's other examples out there, but maybe you can just give us a, a couple of tips on what we should be doing and how we should be setting up for, for these types of shots. Sure. I, I actually had the same situation with a longtime client uh, the other day, and I made it pretty simple for her. Uh, it, when you're going south, you don't need as much club. Everything else, you need at least one more club. What do I need mean by that? Going south, meaning down a hill. Think about it. If you've got a flat lie and you've got, say, a seven iron in your hand, and then all of a sudden you set up correctly for a downhill lie, you're going to be de-lofting that seven iron to a six, maybe even mm-hmm. a five. So if downhill lies, you don't need the extra club. Uh, you want to add a little bit more loft. Everything else you want to add a club because you're going to need the extra length and or you're going to need the extra loft of the golf club or the reduced loft, I should say, to be able to hit the distances you're expecting. From there, the second thing, which is really easy to do, is ball position. I have a phrase, when in trouble uh, or when not flat, ball position's middle. That's where you should start your problem solving, your your decision making. Uh, Why is that? Well, for a lot of these uh, uneven lies, what goes on is, your club bottoms out differently for each of them. Downhill lie probably a little bit a little bit further back than middle. A ball above your feet, uh, a, a, an uphill lie. If you're set up correctly, it may be a little bit in front of middle. For a ball below your feet, all depends on how you're balancing. Hopefully, that's in the middle. What the middle guarantees is you're going to strike the ball, not the earth and you're not going to strike the top of the ball hitting a very thin shot. So that's just a point of reference to go with. And then as far as uh, a ball above your feet, a ball below your feet, there's two things to consider. One's ball flight and how you're going to balance this out. Let's start with a ball above your feet. As the ball gets a little bit more above your feet, that ball gets closer to you, whether you realize it or not, from a linear measurement to, say, your shoulders. Uh, Because of that, you're going to need to choke up on any club, and therein lies the fact that you're going to need an extra golf club. Put a ball above the feet for the right-handed golfer, uh, left-handed golfer, it's going to be the opposite, obviously. You'll tend to hit a right-to-left shot. Uh, This is because the club's closing a little bit faster, the hill allows that. Someone who fades the ball or slices, they love uphill lies because they get a chance to hit it a little bit straighter. Uh, so do mm-hmm. keep that in mind, aiming a little bit more right than normal if you are if you draw it or if you hit it straight. If you're a fader of the ball, take dead aim. Uh, for Again, for the right-hander downhill, tends to over-exaggerate your fade. You're needing to aim a little more left, a little bit more right for the left-hander. If you do hit a draw, you'll probably see a little bit straighter shot. Can you take dead aim? Possibly, but one of the things about a downhill lie with a really good player is the tendency to pull, to sort of come over the top. It's one of the things that your body does to try to keep you balanced. So one of the things I'm always telling people, 
is take the extra club not only so you don't have to reach down for the ball and then not pop up, but maybe take a slightly wider stance. As you do that, you may lose a little bit of hip rotation, which in turn creates a little bit of club head speed. Taking that extra club certainly going to help you that way. The last thing as far as an uphill downhill, uh, there's two ways of thinking of this. Do you take the shoulders or do you take the hips and make those parallel to the grade of hill that you're on? I'm of the I'm in the camp of taking your hips there. And the reason for it is if you take your hips there, your shoulders have got to go there anyway. With one hand being below the other on the grip, it sets your shoulders with a flat lie in the right position where your back shoulder is a little lower. If you try to take your shoulders, match it to the grade of the hill that you're on, you may be taking the lower part of your body and putting it in a compromising position. Take that hip, take those hips or your belt. doesn't have to be a lot, just so long as you can get it close to the grade of the hill you're on and then set up every other way above the waist the same way you do. You're probably going to be in a better position to make what's going to be the equivalent of a flat lie on another otherwise not so flat lie. It's going to make your, your shot be more resembling what you always do. Well said. And, you know, a lot of these shots we all get faced with um, at various points and sometimes many times throughout our round. And sometimes something as simple, you know, people think they've got to make great adjustments to their golf swing. They start monkeying around with the golf. Well, I've got to swing a little harder. I've got to swing a little faster or whatever the case may be. And that's not the case. A lot of times it's just a simple adjustment in your setup. Um, you know, again, managing the whatever grade of, of uh your landscape you may be in, if it's downhill, uphill, or side hill, uh, making some adjustments, as you pointed out, John, uh, is really all you need to do. And uh, again, it may be uh, a matter of uh, choking up on a club for, for a ball that's above your feet um, or taking a, a longer uh, you know, club or a more lofted club, again, depending on the circumstances. So a lot of times it might be just something as simple as an equipment change or a very modest adjustment in body alignment um, in handling uh, and and ball position as well, and a lot of times people get into all kinds of funky different um, you know movements and whatnot. And the next thing you know, they're not actually again as I pointed out earlier, they're not actually swinging the club anymore. They're they're actually sort of chopping at the ball or making uh, you know unnecessary adjustments that are not going to be beneficial for whatever shot they may be faced with. So making good uh, club choices is is paramount. Um, but also being willing to make certain adjustments depending on your situation. And these are things that, believe it or not, you can practice in your practice session, not your warm-up. That's a different thing as we talked about. But your practice session, uh, whether you're with your coach or a teaching professional or whether you're on your own, because most ranges now, not all of them are flat. Some of them, are, I know, are flat, but there's many out there that have um, multiple-level tee boxes. And a lot of times you can get over off to the side and get yourself in a little bit of a, a side hill or a downhill uh, situation, and you can actually practice that. Or even some of them might have a little rough over there. You can throw some balls in a little deeper to simulate what you might be faced with out in the golf course. So always look for opportunities uh, to get out there and, and experiment a little bit. That's the time to do it is during your practice session and not your warm-up. Um, some great answers, guys. Uh, I want to jump in here as we're uh, moving along here pretty quick. 
these are some swing flaws and fixes that we might be faced with. Pete, I'm going to come back to you. Um, this is one that, and a lot of people might think it's it's just a matter of changing club, and in most cases we can get away with it, but uh, there's other th- options as well. A lot of people say, well, I've got a very uh, low, uh, I, I hit a very low ball flight. How can I get a higher trajectory on my shots? And the opposite is I hit it very high. How can I lower the trajectory of my shot? So what adjustments can I make, or what do I need to do if I need, uh, maybe I'm I'm dealing with some wind, uh, or I'm dealing with elevation and I need to either make the ball fly higher or a little bit shorter, what are some things I can do to make that happen? Well, there's there's things that you can do um, to change the ball trajectory. I mean, some, some players tend to hit it high, some tend to hit it low, and it really depends on, you know, the, the definite angles of their swing. Some swings are more shallow, which tend to hit a lower ball flight. Some are, some are steeper, which tend to hit it a little bit higher. Um you know, I grew up in Kansas where, you know, if the wind ever stopped blowing, you'd fall down because you're always leaning into the wind. So you had to learn how to hit it low all the time. And, and it's it's very much taken a swing that's, you know, almost three-quarter like, almost like the old punch shot to where you, you, you take the length of the backswing down so you don't create, you know, too much length, too much speed, and then you just take more club. Um, and so you shorten it down so you, so you don't have as, as, as much of an angle so you can drive the ball lower. Uh, a little bit more rounded type swing, and then take more club to fight the wind as you're going into it. So if it's a, if it's a, you know, normally a, a eight iron, you might need to take a six or a five, depending on what's going on. And it's sort of a learned art to do that. But the, the more rounded, the more shallow type of swing you can take, the lower ball flight you can create. Now it's not 100% there, but it's the tendency will be there to hit a little bit lower. So you can move the ball back in your stance to hit lower shots. Uh, that'll help. It'll it'll tend to deal off the club. I wouldn't go too far. Um, some take it too far to the extreme, and then you start running the club into the ground, so you start digging too much. So you can move the ball back to hit it lower. You can move the ball forward to hit it higher. Um, you know, you can, you know, a lot of times if, if I'm teaching some guys out on the course and they need to go over an obstacle, I'll have them play the ball more forward, where if the distance is, a nine iron, I might have them play it forward with a seven so they can get nine iron height, but, but a little bit longer distance. And so you can, you can play with that type of situation too, by moving the ball up in your stance and, you know, a little bit more upright swing will hit it a little bit higher too. Um, you look at some of the players that have, have flown the club, you know, more up and down and have very, very high ball flights. Um, and we've come across those, you know, as we're, as we're, we're teaching. Um, but yeah, there's adjustments you can make in setup, um, and there's adjustments you can make in the swing itself uh, to hit different trajectories. And you know, it reminds me because I know every every closing clinic when I was with with John Jacobs himself, he would put me out there and make me hit different trajectories. And and he he said you can't change the setup, you got to make the swing different to change the trajectory. And so you know mm-hmm. you, you get a little bit flatter one for a low one, a normal one, then you get a little bit more upright swing for a high one. And so. You know, you can change the actual swing plane, if you, per se, um, to, to make the trajectory change. So there are definitely some things you can do. And, you know, I wouldn't hesitate to experiment. You know, get out on the range and move the ball around. You know, fiddle with it. Put it back. Put it forward. You know, and, you know try to figure out, you know, what's going to happen if I move the ball around a little bit and what do I get? You know, some of them might find that they hit it better by moving it, you know, and get it in a different position. Um you know, so don't hesitate to experiment with that. Don't hesitate to experiment with the swing. But I know for me and hitting low shots, 
always I always like to call it a shoulder swing. I take the hands about shoulder high, and I don't let them get any further, so I can keep the club swinging on a little bit lower, a little bit flatter plane, and uh, and then really using the body with it and trying to mirror the hands and arms of the body together as one unit, and that'll really help to drive the ball very very low and and uh, as I always like to say, hit it under the wind instead of up into it. Yeah, well said. And you know what I, you know, a lot of times have done myself uh, over the years is, um, you know, if I'm faced with a seven iron uh, distance, but I need to keep the ball down, maybe there's uh, some obstacles, maybe there's some tree branches ahead and I need to get that ball down, but I don't want to, you know, necessarily have it go any further than the distance I I require. um, I can take a five iron and I can just choke down uh, a couple of inches with my five iron and just take my normal swing and, um, or even maybe a slightly less abbreviated swing and hit almost a punch style shot. And I'm getting my seven iron distance, but I'm hitting the trajectory of a five iron or even less, uh, depending on the circumstances. So there's a lot of things that again, you're exactly right. You got to get out there and experiment. And, uh, the best place to, <clears throat> to do that, <clears throat> excuse me, is on the practice tee and on the dri- uh, the driving range, go out there and work on some of these different things. And, uh, you'd be amazed at, at some of the different shots. You know, it's often been said that tiger, uh, you know, has so many shots in the bag. Uh, he's got more shots than clubs. And when he gets faced with any particular condition, uh, you know, he knows exactly what shot he needs to hit under virtually every condition that he's faced with. And he's not making a lot of changes to everything. It's just um, he's making some minor adjustments. You know, quite often we've seen him hit, you know, uh, his famous stinger out there uh, and gets it down the middle of the fairway, a low sort of boring shot. Um, you know, he's just making some subtle changes and he knows how to do that. And he's been very successful with that over the years. So there's lots of things that you can do. Um, John, I'm going to give you one here uh, as we get close to our time. And this is really not so much a a swing flaw, if you will. Um, but it's something that a lot of people struggle with. And that is, and I know this is something you have uh, talked a lot about in your, in your, um, lesson programs. And that is, uh, the ability to be able to improve one's balance. Uh, particularly through the finish of their swing. A lot of people don't finish with uh, very good balance. A lot of times they'll fall back on their, if they're right-handed, they'll fall back on their on their uh, trailing foot um, or not even get over onto their for- front foot, which would be their left in that case, um, through the downswing at all. Uh, and that creates a whole myriad of problems. So how can we improve our balance? How can we work, what can we do to work on our balance um, so that we're making good transition in the golf swing um, and uh, doing it in balance. Uh, great question. I'm going to try to tie this back to a, a couple of other questions that not only I've answered, but Pete's answered. And I want to throw a physics conundrum out at everybody and have them think about it a little bit. Uh, one of the Newtonian seven laws of physics states that it takes more energy to stop something that's in motion than it did to create that same body into motion. So if you're not fully finishing your swing, most likely there was a break applied to your swing at some point throughout that swing. Why? Most likely because your body felt unbalanced. You may not be consciously recognizing this, but it's guaranteed your equilibrium, that small little sack of water behind the bridge of your nose, which is pre-programmed to put you on autopilot when you're about to fall over, it knows when you're out of balance and it puts the brake on. Where does that brake occur? 
before you ever strike the golf ball most of the time. So when you're talking about, hey, I need to hit it further, that's the importance of being able to strike it better. When you're striking it better, you're most likely staying in a balanced position throughout the swing. Now, we're not talking about static balance, so like putting mm. oh, an equal amount of weight on either side of a scale. What we're talking about is dynamic balance, your ability to maintain your balance as you create and maintain and finish emotion. So a lot of times people are taught, hey, make sure you're in this ready position. Um, I've heard it described as like being a shortstop or being a point guard defending somebody. Those are all great analogies simply because most of us play sports that are reactive. You're, you're having to react to a movement of a ball, a movement of a person, or both. Uh, so with that said, think about it. The golf ball is stationary, and it requires a, a slightly different amount of balance and then as you set up to the golf ball, it's creating some imbalances. I had already said previously, hey, the bottom hand, it takes the, bo- the trail shoulder and makes it lower. That creates a secondary spine tilt. It, it's going to force your equilibrium to go, okay, how do I counterbalance this? I haven't even made a move to the golf ball yet. So what I ask people to do is two things. Before swinging, are you in balance before you swing and it's below the belt where I have people concentrate because that's where you're going to gain the ground leverage to not only strike the ball well, but to strike it with more speed. So when you're talking about toe to heel, it's not up on the toes. It's not up even on the ball of your feet to be in this ready position. In my book, it's okay to be 50 50 because it's an easier position to leverage your feet throughout the entire swing. From left to right, again, waist down, 50-50. There's a lot of camps that say lean a little forward. There's some camps that will say lean a little back. But at the end of the day, that's going to create a counterbalance before you ever make a swing. And that's something your equilibrium's got to compensate for within your swing. When you're equal to both sides, you're obviously going to feel a little bit heavy to your backside again because that trail arm is a little lower on the grip than than your front arm. When you can start that way, it's going to be easier to make a balanced swing. Number two, anytime you are being violent with your transition, meaning it looks like you're chopping wood, it looks like you're trying to throw not only the line of the fishing pole out into the lake, you're trying to throw the fishing pole out into the lake, what's commonly referred to as casting. The more you can soften that, the more you can dampen it and actually let it drop instead of be thrown, actually is going to create a better position for you to stay in balance as you make that transition. That's something I work with with every golfer that I work with regardless of skill level, can we get that transition to be softer uh, uh, and dropping to the ground versus being thrown violently out? When you can do those things, you can get to a full finish and be balanced at that full finish. But the real key is if you've made a balanced swing, you have no problem staying in balance to a full finish. That's why you see all the great golfers of the world, male, female, They hold that pose, what I call the baseball card pose, 
it's the golfer card pose, and it's it's everything's fully finished. That's a sign of a great balanced swing. Well said. You know, and and just to go back to a point that that Pete had made uh, a little bit earlier on in in talking about the warm up before the round, um, this is where I uh, where the importance of some good stretching. Um, this, believe it or not, can help with balance as well. If your muscles are tight um, and you're not able to make the transitions, you end up compensating um, by either tilting or leaning in a direction that's not normally the way your body would naturally react to the movement uh, in order to compensate or to avoid discomfort. So a lot of times that can throw you out of balance as well. So it's very important to make sure that you do stretch properly uh, for a few minutes before you get out there and play, uh, particularly before you start swinging a club. Um, you know, obviously the older we get, uh, that becomes even more important. But, you know, if your muscles are tight and, and sort of, and you're stove up a little bit, um, you're not going to be in very good balance anyways. Again, you're going to be, um, you know, making compensations in your setup uh, in order to adjust for that discomfort. And ultimately that's going to throw everything else, uh, John, that you just talked about, uh, throw that all out the window anyways. So um, that's a, a good place to start is make sure that uh, you're stretching properly, get yourself, get those muscles warmed up and, and working so that they can support uh, your your frame. And, and I agree with, with what you said. I think that 50-50 balance is, is a good place to start from. All right, guys, as always, uh, enjoyed our conversation. There was some more questions I had, but uh, unfortunately we don't have any time, and that'll have to wait for the panel uh, coming on next week uh, to carry on the conversation. But it was a great start and lots of uh, uh, great answers uh, by you guys as normal. And uh, I'll give each of you a, a moment or two to uh, share any final thoughts uh, with the listeners and also to let them know uh, the best way they can uh, reach out if they want to contact you. Um, Pete, I'm going to let you go first, and then John. Again, Ted, Ted thanks for uh, for having me on, John. It's always a pleasure. I always enjoy listening to you and, and being on the show with you. You know, they can reach me at plainsimplegolf.com. The, the plane is P-L-A-N-E. And, you know, I would tell the, the folks that are listening out there, I said, you know, don't, don't underestimate the power of practice because it, it's important. You know, get out there and practice. You know, all of us players that got to where we are, we didn't do it by just waking up and going out and doing it. We put some work into it. So, so don't hesitate to get out there and practice the things that you're being taught and being told by your coaches and your, and your professionals. And uh, on the plain simple golf side, uh, We've got some some new things that we're going to be pulling out in, in 2021. So um, just keep posted. Get on the website. We'll be announcing some new things. But we've got a new interactive website. I think that's going to be pretty cool. It's going to be coming out in 2021 for uh, for you to get on and, and be able to see everything that's going on. So be on the lookout for that. Very good. Um, and John, what about yourself? Uh, again, Ted, always a fantastic opportunity. Definitely appreciate you providing that to me, Pete. Uh, I always look forward to being on the show with you. Uh, it, we have a lot of similar similarities, but I'm always learning something new from you too, and I, I certainly appreciate that. As I always tell people, really easy. John Hughes Golf. Put an at in front of it, a dot com behind it. Fit into the search bar of any social media, Facebook, Twitter. Instagram, LinkedIn, you're going to find me there. Always available if you contact me before 5 o'clock any day of the year, including holidays. 
you're guaranteed uh, a reply back. And I want to say congratulations to Alex Fisher being part of the show here momentarily. Uh, a really good friend of mine, a fantastic young instructor mm-hmm. that I came across well over 10 years ago. He, he's a great friend. I think he's going to add a whole lot to not only the listeners tonight, but in the future as well. Again, thanks, Ted, for the opportunity. I appreciate it as well. Thank you, guys. Um, Have a great weekend and um, a great evening. And as always, thank you very much for your input here on the Coach's Corner panel. Until next time, God bless, guys. Thanks, Ted. Thanks, Ted. All right, that was John Hughes and Pete Buchanan. Uh, helping uh, on tonight's Coach's Corner panel. And uh, yes, indeed, uh, Alex Fisher is going to be my special guest here in a few moments. Uh, And um, he was introduced to me by John Hughes uh, a couple of months ago, and we've uh, had a a great conversation on the phone, and I invited him to be a special guest, as I normally do um, with uh, my fellow golf professionals. And uh, he is also going to be participating on a couple of the future panels uh, here on Coach's Corner. Uh, tonight he's going to be my special guest, but he'll be joining in as a, uh, uh, a guest panelist on, uh, on some future Coach's Corners. And uh, hopefully he'll, uh, he'll sign in for some more uh, in the new year as well. But uh, uh, very, very interesting young man. Uh, he has uh, been the director of instruction at the uh, Glacier Club out in Colorado since uh, 2013, uh, originally from Nottingham, England. Uh, He moved uh, to the Naples, Florida area in 1999 to pursue a career uh, in the golf industry at Vanderbilt uh, Country Club. Uh, During the time, while he was there, he met his his wife, uh, Mary, and uh, while he was working at the golf course. And in 2001, uh, they headed west, as uh, many folks do, as they uh, hitched their wagon out uh, Arizona way. And uh, since moving to the Valley, uh, he had been a golf instructor at the Phoenix Country Club, uh, also at TPC Scottsdale, as well as director of instruction at TPC Las Vegas. Uh, In addition to being at the Glacier Club up in Colorado, he is also uh, director of instruction at the JW uh, Camelback Golf Club in Scottsdale, Arizona during the winter months. You can find him there. And uh, he'll be joining me here in just a moment. And when he does, I I will bring him on. I'm excited to uh, have him on the show this evening. But in the meantime, let me remind everybody, um, if you're interested in uh, checking out some great uh, golf tips and some great uh, featured articles in uh, Golf Tips Magazine, uh, you can go to golftipsmag.com and subscribe to the magazine, and uh, you'll get uh, six uh, issues come out annually. They're bi-monthly issues. Uh, for just uh, $14.97 here in the United States and uh, a little bit more in Canada. I can't remember the price off the top of my head, but it's all there. And uh, there's six issues uh, full of some great instruction and, as I said, some great articles. And the current issue, which uh, is actually the September-October issue, is currently available at newsstands. It became available uh, August 4th, and uh, it features uh, an interesting story about, uh, of course, one of the legends of the game, Jack Nicholas, and uh, some other great stuff. So you can find that out there. Barnes & Noble is one of the major uh, chains carrying it, as well as Books a Million and uh, so many other uh, great centers as well. Uh, and uh, the next issue coming out, which will be the November-December issue, 
I'm not going to uh, spoil the surprise, but it's got another uh, legend of the game that you're going to see on that and uh, a very uh, up and personal article written by his son. And um, I think you'll enjoy that story as well, plus uh, some more great instruction and some other uh, interesting articles along the way. So, uh, again, um, lots of great ways to uh, tune up your game, if you will, through the magazine. So subscribe today. And if you're already a subscriber, um, what a great gift. Uh, You can also gift a subscription to Golf Tips Magazine. Again, go to golftipsmag.com. And uh, you can just fill up the information there, and you can actually give it as a gift. Uh, maybe you've got uh, that uh, golfer in your family that uh, has been struggling with uh, his or her game, and uh, maybe some helpful tips from Golf Tips Magazine. It's a very uh, inexpensive gift. Again, the uh, cover price here in the U.S. is fourteen ninety-seven for six issues, and uh, you can get your hot little hands on that uh, anytime by going to golftipsmag.com, or uh, you can go to Uh, any of the uh, major chains and most newsstands around the country and in Canada will carry them as well. So as I mentioned, my very special guest tonight is Alex Fisher. I've already told you a little bit about him, so I'm just going to bring him on and we're going to start our discussion tonight here on Golf Talk Live. Good evening, Alex. How are you doing? Great, Ted. How are you, sir? I'm doing very well. Welcome to Golf Talk Live. Well, thank you. I appreciate you having me on. Not a problem. So I've I've, uh, sort of laid out a little bit of your uh, background uh, for everybody, but um, maybe just give us a little bit of an eye, uh, a little bit more in-depth, if you wouldn't mind. Um, When did you first start uh, playing the game? When did you first sort of get introduced to golf? Um, Roughly how old were you, and and who sort of introduced you to the game? Sure. Um, So as you can tell from my accent, I'm not from uh, the U.S. Uh, I grew up in uh, Nottingham in England, and it was like a lot of golfers. My uh, my father got me into playing golf when I was about eight years old and was fortunate to spend a lot of time with him on the golf course and uh, create a lot of memories. Yeah, it's uh, I think a lot of us that uh, uh, certainly in my case that that grew up in my generation, you know, dad was normally the one that that got you out to the golf course and uh once you hit a took a few swipes on the range uh it was uh it was you were hooked into it and and couldn't wait to get out in the golf course i want to just touch on a few more of your highlights i again i mentioned a little bit about your background um but i want to just hit a few more of uh, alex's highlights here uh in 2007 he was uh, became a pj of america member uh 2012 he was uh and 13 he was uh, a golf digest top 40 teacher under 40 uh 2015 he was uh, golf digest best young teachers in america as well as 2016 2017 uh and in 2017 he was a pj certified teaching and coach 2017 uh, u.s kids golf top 50 teacher in the united states uh as well as in uh 2018 uh he got uh, level one certified uh with tpi performance institute in 2018 and in 2018 and 2019 uh, he became the best teacher in state, uh, Colorado Avid Golfers. Um, and also in 2019, he became a U.S. Kids Golf Master Teacher. Uh, so a lot of great achievements there, a lot of great accolades uh, that you've uh, sort of racked up here over the last little while. Um, so what brought you over to the U.S.? Because uh, obviously there's some great golf uh, over in Europe and other parts uh, uh, around the globe 
what sort of brought you here to the United States? No, that's a great question. Uh, well, thank you for mentioning all of those things. I, I didn't realize I'd done all that stuff. <laughs> so that was nice. <laughs> um, but no, I um, I was uh, back in uh, 1998. I was uh, part of kind of a, a pilot program for the PGA uh, UK, and there was a PGM mm. program that started at a university back in England. And so I was not the first year of the program, but the second year of the program, and. Part of that, I was uh, I had to go and intern at a facility for at least six months, and you know, instead of doing the the, the thing locally and and being at a, a course that I grew up at, I thought I would kind of venture out. And uh, back then, um, I was handwriting letters out to all these different golf courses and uh, over in the U.S. and uh, was fortunate enough to get to a golf course in Naples, Florida, and I was pretty much sold on the U.S. after that. Yeah, there's definitely some some great golf uh, here in the United States, as there is uh, really around the world now. There, I mean, it's become such a global game, uh, but definitely the U.S. is is still uh, a dominant market uh, in the game, and and uh, just so, so many great players and 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 folks, uh, you know, whether in Florida or out west, um, you know, have uh, staked their claim and made made that home. And for obvious reasons, it's uh, great golf all year round. So I don't blame them for doing that. And uh, right. obviously have the opportunity, yeah. Obviously have the opportunity to work uh, with some some top-rated uh, uh, golf teaching professionals, uh, really in the world. So, um, so let me ask you something. You know, this is a question that I think a lot of amateurs uh, and maybe even parents might have: is what sort of goes into developing a future champion? You know, we we see, you know. Uh, 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 Bryson DeChambeau. We see a, a lot of. Uh, young players now they're real hot on the PGA Tour as an example and and people kind of wonder what goes into developing these and and from a teaching uh, professional standpoint what do you look for what are you looking for it's not just a matter of hitting the ball great there's other qualities I know that you're you're looking for as well but when you're trying to develop a future champion and let's say you're a parent from their perspective and from your perspective what are you guys both looking for Sure. No, uh, great question. Um, I think, you know, every kid is a little bit different, obviously, uh, different um, maturities and uh, different experiences, things like that. I've I've got a lot out of what the PGA has done recently with the PGA coach program where they've got involved with uh, a program called ADM, which is an American development model. And it was based around a, a number of different uh, sports that were based off of the Olympics, uh, starting back in around 2014 with the, the hockey team and the basketball team. And they were looking at how to develop um, athletes of the future. And uh, they got a number of um, high-profile athletes involved, like Steph Curry, Alex Morgan, players like that, uh, athletes like that, I should say. And they realized that kids were playing at all these all different sports. They hadn't kind of focused on one specific sport at an early age. And I, I'm a big believer in that. I think kids should have the experience of playing multiple sports up until a certain age or a certain point before they start to get really competitive. So I'm a, I'm a big advocate with parents telling them that they shouldn't get their kids just pigeonholed into one sport at a, at a young age, have them mm-hmm. experience different sports and then as, as things develop, um, the, the, the model is shown right around 
14, I believe it is, for uh, boys and 13 for girls, that's where they should really kind of focus on one specific sport. And, and at that point, that's where you can really develop different skills. But obviously you're looking for um, solid fundamentals, things like that, at an early age and maintaining those. But the the, the um, U.S. Kids program is a firm believer in uh, developing skills through skill-based games, and I think that's a, an important approach to take as well with, with kids. Don't make it so structured and so strict. Make sure that they're having fun while they're, uh, they are learning. Yeah, and that's a great point. And let me just sort of follow up on that, you know, because there's obviously things as a coach from a coach's perspective, uh, obviously in some that you just pointed out that you're looking for, you're looking for sound fundamentals and you're looking for obviously um, enthusiasm for the sport. Somebody that, you know, for a young, uh, whether a boy or a girl that's, um, you know, played a lot of different sports and for some reason around that, that golden age, if you will, has decided to gravitate towards golf. Now that's where you're really going to step in and, and take it to that next level. Um, but are there are some things if you're talking to the parents at this point, are there is there a conversation you're going to have with them? Uh, because we see this too many times where, uh, you know, they want their kid to be the next Tiger Woods or whatever the case is, whoever they're following. And there's a lot of outside or external pressures on that youngster. Um, is there a conversation you're going to have with their parents and say, hey, little Johnny or little Susie has some talent, but we've got to be mindful that. We can't heap too much pressure on them, otherwise they're not going to be able to, uh, you know, to progress. What's that conversation like? No, absolutely. I think you you kind of hit the nail on the head there. Um, it's not easy to tell a parent to be patient. Um, I've learned from, I would say, some of my mistakes with my kids um, that you can pile on pressure a little bit too young. Um, but I think patience is the key. As as kids, they're going to develop. They're going to you're going to see accelerated accelerated rates of improvement. But then you're going to plateau. And and there's really no magic button um, when it comes to kids developing and growing and getting stronger and things like that. Um, you, you're you're up against a number of different different things. But I think patience is the key. And I think in the past, um, I'm sure parents don't want to necessarily hear that, but they have to understand that there is a process and there is a time and place where things will develop quicker than, than other situations. And I think, uh, well said. And I think also too, um, Alex, I think you, you want to look at the child themselves and how receptive they are to that information. You know, if you see that they're getting overwhelmed or, um, you know, burdened with some of what they're being taught and, and not able to comprehend certain aspects of it, then you know maybe you're pushing them a little bit too far too fast. So it really, you know, if they can take more on and they're, and they're receptive to it and they're, you know, um, reacting well to whatever you're feeding them, let's say, then that's a good sign. But if, the, if you start to see anxiety building up or pressure building up and they're not handling it well, that's maybe a time to scale back. And again, that's when that conversation with the parents is really crucial, right? You know, I, I totally agree. I think from a personal experience, I've had a tremendous amount of success with PGA Junior League as a, as a captain for a few years now. Um, I mm -hmm. like the, the, the approach there where it is a little bit more of a team uh, um, atmosphere in the sense of you know, the, each kid doesn't feel like the, the, all the pressure is on their shoulders. Um, in a team event, just like in Little League or any other sport, you, you, you definitely feel like there's less pressure. But at the same time, um, in, in the past when I've done these matches and had PGA Junior League teams, I've always made sure that I paired a more experienced child with a, a younger um, athlete 
just so they can mentor them as well. And, and it's amazing. You do see through drip feeding um, different information and instructions to them uh, through that format. It's, re it's worked really well. And I've seen kids really progress a lot more quickly that way versus just doing strictly one-on-one -on -one instruction in tournaments. Let me just ask you one more question in this area. You know, we, we want to, and the reason why I say this is, um, you know, in addition to sort of the general public that listens to this program, there's a lot of uh, of your fellow professionals that listen that may be working with some juniors that fall into this category. So I always like to to have you guys share your experiences and your knowledge with one another. Um, so those that are tuning into the show tonight can say, hey, you know what, I've got a, a player that maybe falls in that category, and that's some great advice that I could use. Um, or an area that I've typically had some issues with that might help. Um, where, when it comes to uh, teaching uh, some of these junior players, from your own personal experience, have you found it easier in developing these younger players um, when you're teaching young, younger girls or younger boys. Obviously, there's physical differences in strength and endurance and things like that. But do you find it easier in achieving some of those goals um, when teaching young girls or or younger boys? What have you found uh, in your repertoire? I think um, I, I would say that you know I've had success with both sides. I, I will say um, that I've found working with girls. Um, they're just a little bit more mature at, at a younger age. Now, I've, I've certainly worked right. with some boys that are at an even younger that have been super smart and, and super um, focused. But definitely, I, I would say more more success in, in developing uh, young female players. Just again, because of I think their maturity uh, just happens a little bit younger. Mm -hmm. Well, I think they listen more too. <laughs> They typically they, yep, they, they, they tend a little to do better. that, and and they don't want to hit their driver 300 yards just yet. So, <laughs> well, and and I think they're they're more apt to be receptive to constructive criticism. Um, I think if they know that what you're teaching them is going to help them in the long run, they're more willing to to be receptive, and they're also going to be willing to put in the, the extra hard work. And not, not to say the boys won't either, but sometimes, like you said, the boys are they're more. They, I want to get it out there 300 yards. What do I got to do? And they kind of get very a bit of tunnel vision, if you will, in certain areas more so than I think some of the. And the reason why I say it is, if you look at many of the players that the up and comers, and even some of that have progressed out onto the LPJ tour, they're very, very, very focused on their games and. They're, you know, certainly they want to get more distance, but that's not the priority for them. It's it's about scoring. It's about, you know, hitting those those finesse shots when needed. So they're they're willing to be more well-rounded and focused in their overall game as opposed to just a power game, um, because I know that that is not something that is going to necessarily serve them well in their game. So uh, I was just curious about that. Uh, another area too, uh, Alex, that, uh, and, and I'd like you to maybe expand a little bit about it on this is. Um, about the golf swing itself. There's a lot of uh, very common misconceptions. What are some of the misconceptions? Absolutely. Um, it's interesting, you know, the, there is, I, I think, you know, information is a good thing, but I think information is a powerful thing. And there's a number of different outlets online where you can get your golf information at a click of a button. Um, and when you when you look at all the, the you know, the, the world-class instructors out there, they do stick to, Three basic principles, I believe, and they're based around impact. 
Um, obviously getting the face square, preferably getting the path a little bit more inside out, and then really looking at where the low point of the, the swing is in terms of where the divot is. Um, I think of some of the misconceptions that I hear, unfortunately from some of our members when they're teaching their spouses about keeping the head still, uh, keeping your head down, right. you know, basic things that have, have been going around for years and years and years. And I, you know, like I say, it, it's, you've got to be very careful out there in terms of all the information that's out there because you may be already doing something really good in your swing. And if you misinterpret a, a certain tip or a certain article or video, video, it can certainly send you in the wrong direction in terms of what you're trying to do with your golf swing. Exactly. What are some areas in the golf swing, not so much the misconceptions, but that a lot of amateurs kind of miss the boat. You know, we, we see the professionals on TV and, you know, we try to mimic them quite often. We, you know, whether it be an LPGA player or a PGA player, whoever happens to be your favorite. Um, and we see them swing and we try to, you know, emulate what they're doing. But for some reason, it just doesn't seem to come out the same way. What is it that they're doing differently than say from what we're doing well i think there's a, there's a lot of different um you know movement patterns and things like that uh, we talk about kinematic sequence in terms of making sure the body is working in the right sequence a lot of things that you don't see um just on tv and, and live action itself i think there's i think we have to understand how much, let's say, how much Rory rotates his body on his backswing and Dustin Johnson. And if you're trying to mimic one of those swings and you're physically not able to do that, at some point your right. body's either going to break down or you're going to make a compensating move to try and get to that point. But if you're physically unable to get into those positions, I think it's a dangerous game to try and mimic a, a certain swing. I think we would, we would all love to have Adam Scott's swing, but I know personally that sure. I'm not in his <laughs> physical shape or <laughs> the ability to, to rotate right. the same amount that he is able to. I think, you know, you see the the, the guys on tour as well and the and the, the females, um, their swing speed's off the charts, and, and I think that's a big misconception mm. there. You know, trying to hit the ball harder doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to make the golf ball go further um, as well. And I think that's, a, that's a, a big problem I see with players. Well, and that's a great point. We we talked about that the guys uh, a little bit earlier on on the earlier segment, Coach's Corner, uh, which by the way I know you're going to be a part of uh, in the weeks to come, and uh, we're going to be happy to, to have you on a few of them this year, and hopefully you'll uh, be able to commit to some more next year as well. But one of the things that we talked about, and I mentioned in in one of my responses, and that was if you take a player as an example, uh, an Ernie Els or even a Freddie Couples, um, who have sort of a very uh, slower uh, certainly by from a visual perspective a, a sort of a more fluid and an easy going swing compared to some on tour and yet they're able to generate so much club head speed and so much power um and yet it, it looks like their their swings are almost effortless how is it that they're able to do that what is it that again what is it they're doing is it the sequencing because um you know they're able to generate so much power and club head speed and yet it looks like they're barely swinging the club what are they doing well, you know, let's let's talk about tempo and rhythm first off. I think that has a lot to do with personality. If you ever hear Fred Couples speak or even uh, even Ernie Els, um, obviously they're very softly spoken, very laid back people. And I think uh, going back to what we were just talking about a minute ago in terms of misconceptions, we, you know, if you hit a bad shot, often your playing partner says, "Oh, you swung too fast and you got to slow down." Well, if you if you slow down, you're still going to make the same mistake 
whether you do it fast or, or slow. But you, you look at the amount of rotation that somebody like Fred Couples creates and the ability to, to get the lower body moving first before the backswing is completed, that disassociation between the hips and the shoulders just creates so much torque and, and speed that it does look effortless, but um, there's a tremendous amount of power being generated. Yeah, and conversely, you look at somebody, uh, and again, I'm you know, talking, this shows my age a little bit, but uh, you know, some of the, the older players, but you look like a, a Nick Price, who is completely opposite has a very quick rhythm, talks a little bit faster than the other two you mentioned, um, and but doesn't necessarily generate more club head speed than the other two. It's just his tempo and his timing is is at a quicker pace and, and his overall body rhythm. So, again, going to a point that you made earlier is instead of trying to mimic what we're seeing on television, we need to find our own rhythms and work within that and work on our own limitations and not try to force uh, – you know, our swing uh, to emulate somebody else's, especially if our body can't support. I, I, I certainly at 56 am not going to try and swing like Adam Scott. I just don't have that flexibility anymore uh, or may, may never ha- actually have had it. But um, <laughs> so for me, so, you know, for me to try to do that, um, it's just not a lot of sense. So we have to learn to swing within ourselves and really be, be content with who we are and work with what we've got. And that doesn't mean we can't make adjustments uh, and can't improve certain things along the way, but that's really what it's all about, is quit trying to emulate the pros. There are certain things we can take away from them, which I'm going to ask you about in a minute, um, but don't try to emulate necessarily what they're doing because it may not fit our specific body type or style. Would that be a fair assessment? Absolutely. Uh, I think, you know, obviously full swing is extremely important, but when it comes to scoring, if you look at the some of the key stats on the PGA Tour, it's not necessarily about distance. It's more about kind of the short game area of the game. Um, some, some studies have shown that 70% of the shots happen inside of 100 yards, and you're using that putter 46% of the time. I mean, that's that's an area that I, I firmly believe students, whether it's kids or adults, need to, to really start to be more efficient at. That's that's typically where you'll see the, the quickest improvements happen. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree, um, you know, more than that. So let me just, as I just touched on a second ago, I said I want to ask you what we can take away from the pros. So we're not going to try to emulate their swing. We're not going to try to do exactly what we see these guys and gals doing on TV, but there are some takeaways from the pros or things that we can learn um, that might be helpful. What might some of those be? Sure. Absolutely. I think if you you can uh, compare three completely different swings from, from, let's say a Jim Furyk to a Matt Kuchar to we'll use Adam Scott as an example, three different ways of playing golf at a very high level, but there is there's a no, number of consistencies that we see in those uh, those swings that I think every every amateur should be trying to to aim for. And I, obviously, getting the face square, as I mentioned earlier, um, I can't think of too many players that that swing the golf club on an outside in uh, path. Uh, they'll tend to attack the ball more from the inside. And then really looking again where that divot is, uh, as I mentioned earlier as well. Looking, it, it, There was an interesting study done a while ago in terms of where the end of the divot happens. A lot of instructors tend to focus so much on the beginning of the divot, but um, tour players on average will create a divot after the ball that ends about four inches in front. 
which is, which represents where the low point <laughs> of the swing is. And I think if you can right. if you could get a player to get anywhere close to that as an amateur, uh, with the face square and path inside out, they're going to be a pretty good ball striker. Right. Yeah. Well said. Um, let's talk about the driver a little bit. Sure. Um, you mentioned here in, in some of the notes about driver efficiency. What are you talking about? Absolutely. Um, I think, you know, with the, the the different opportunities now to get fitted, I think it's key to get fitted for a, a driver correctly. Um, with my students here in Colorado and as well as down in Scottsdale, um, I always go with a student to a fitting because I want to make sure that that fitting, I know it's going to be a quality fitting, but I want to make sure it's it's done to what we want the swing to become if we're not quite there yet. Um, so obviously, you know, clubhead speed is, is one of the top parameters that we look for with uh, you know with amateurs and, and ways that we can increase uh, clubhead speed but even if you do swing the driver let's say over 100 miles an hour which the majority of amateurs don't do that um, there's a number of parameters to make sure that we, we have to achieve to, to to be efficient with a driver something that's become pretty big in the last few years is what we call angle of attack making sure that we don't hit down on the golf ball with a driver that we do um, at least try and hit up on the ball a little bit. Um, and you've seen with baseball in the last couple of years how a lot of the, the sluggers and, and, and hitters have kind of taken a note out of golf's page and trying to hit up on the, on the mm-hmm. baseball as well just to get that, that launch angle that we're looking for. Right, right. And, and, and yeah, you're, you're exactly right. You know, we see a lot of different things. And, and I know, again, it, it's going to vary for, for individuals, but a general rule of thumb you know, one of the problems that we often see is with a lot of our amateur golfers is they're teeing the ball, especially with today's modern driver where you've got, you know, 460 cc uh, club face and uh, or club head rather. And, you know, they're teeing the ball very, very low uh, and not actually being able to uh, to get that, you know, uh, not only forward swing, but but upward swing a little bit. And so often, quite often, they're sort of chopping down at the ball and through Um Typically, if we're playing with one of our modern drivers today, what generally, for most cases and most tee shots, how high should we be teeing the ball? Where should the ball, if we're laying the club face behind the ball, how should the ball sit behind or sit in front of it, rather? Sure. I, I, I think it, um, as a fair gauge, I would look at least half of the, the ball above the face, half on the face. Okay. Um, typically, the, the lower you tee it, the more, you, like you say, you are going to hit down on the golf ball. It's not, it's not efficient to be uh, attacking the ball from the outside because uh, you will hit down, and that will increase spin rate. Obviously, we need uh, spin to get the golf ball up in the air, but too much spin with a driver certainly wouldn't be very efficient. Um, so a lot of listeners, if you're, if you're hitting drives and your ball's kind of right next to where your pitch mark is, there's a good chance that you're probably hitting down on it and creating way too much spin. Right, and obviously a myriad of of things can happen there, um, and and you know I think sometimes too, um, you know, swing slow and easy is uh, you know this is something that we see a lot of times with many of our amateur golfers. They you know they they got to white knuckle it for some reason and think they got to you know swing until they pop out of their their golf shoes, and really that's not the case. The club will do the work for you. Um, it's better to be more. Uh, swing within yourself and get your timing and your um, your your rhythm and your timing, as you mentioned earlier. Uh, even if you've got to swing it at 
80% as opposed to 100%, you're more than likely going to make better contact and get more distance overall. Would that be pretty accurate as well? Absolutely, yes. Uh, we call it center of contact, but um, certainly try to be efficient by hitting the sweet spot is, is a big thing. And I think one of the, the, the key issues there is that with manufacturers, when they do all their testing, they're using a machine, so there's no really no real human error. And um, obviously, if you swing a driver that's almost 46 inches in length with a machine that's going to hit it out of the center of the face every time, that's going to be great. But uh, unfortunately, human error does happen. And uh, with with that length of driver in somebody's hand, it's going to be a little bit of a mishmash in terms of where you hit it on the, the heel or the toe. Um, but when you look at the, the, the players on the, the PGA and LPGA, they've gone shorter. They're more around 44 inches yep. in length. And that's just to improve right. that consistency when it comes to, to contact on the face. Yeah, they're looking for more at this point. They're, you know, they've got the distance down. They're looking for more accuracy. So that's exactly right. And, and obviously, as you <clears throat> mentioned uh, you know, a little bit ago, um, with, with well, really any of your clubs, particularly your driver, is you want to make sure you're fitted properly for it. One of the biggest mistakes we see with a lot of our club golfers and our amateur golfers is, you know, they they get whatever you know manufacturer they want, and quite often are playing with uh, either a, in many cases a too stiff shaft or not stiff enough. So that's another area too that needs to be really looked at when you're making your club selection is making sure that you're you're fitted properly for that, right? Yeah, absolutely, and and again, there's a num- number of different parameters around that um, that are involved in ter- in terms of picking the right loft and, and right shaft. I think a, a, an, another common mistake I see with people is loft of the head itself. Um, I'm going to date myself mm-hmm. now. Um, when I was when I was playing competitively <laughs> younger, um, I was using I actually started off using a, a laminated or a persimmon headed wood, but Back in the day, the, the golf balls were a lot softer in the sense that if you hit one out of a bunker, it would pretty, be pretty much kind of smiling back at you. It would have a crack in it. So we had to use drivers right. back then where they had a lower loft to, to compensate for how much the ball spins. Well, nowadays, it's not quite right. the same. It's almost a, a reverse where the ball doesn't spin as much. I think some of the complaints you hear from the, the, the pros on TV is that it's harder to work the golf ball left and right because the ball doesn't spin as much. Right. So having to 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 make up the difference for something that doesn't spin as much we have to add loft and you'll see a lot of a lot of times with working with amateurs they'll hit a ball high thinking it's too much loft and their first reaction with these adjustable drivers is to turn the loft down but it's probably a simple case again of hitting down on the golf ball or their path is incorrect yep. so loft loft is a good thing i think i think something that we shouldn't be scared of and should definitely embrace What's a good rule, just very quickly, and then I want to move on, when it comes to a driver? And again, I know it's going to vary for, for, from player to player, but generally um, for our higher handicap golfers, is it better for them to be playing uh, with more loft? Like as an example, maybe you know, 10.5 or even 11 degree uh, loft, uh, as opposed to we see a lot of our amateur golfers playing with an 8.5 or even 9, 9.5. Um, it's better for them. They're going to have an easier time to, to get it airborne uh, and also have, again, less spin um, playing a, a higher lofted driver than less loft. Is that a good rule of thumb for them? I think so, yes. Um, there's a number of different studies out there and, and guidelines that we try and stick to. Um, typically, if your club head speed doesn't reach a threshold of 93 miles an hour or faster with a driver, which uh, unfortunately is a lot of 
a lot of amateurs out there, you're probably going to hit your three wood just as far as your driver. Um, so yep. now you're seeing a lot of drivers that are 10, 10 and a half degrees or even 11 degrees, but they have the capability of adding an extra couple of degrees of loft in there. I think all mm-hmm. those adjustable drivers are out there for us to, 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 to help golfers. And I think, uh, it's something that we're probably not using enough, but loft is a good thing. Definitely. Yeah. Well, I agree. And it, 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 it hides a lot of mistakes too. I think a lot of times it, it, uh, it, it, it can overshadow um, some of the issues that we have and kind of, you know, puts it in its place. All right, let's talk about um, prep, uh, preparation and course management. This is something that a lot of, again, our amateur golfers uh, fall way short. Um, you know, we've got two areas, uh, two camps, if you will. Um, there's the camp that when they go out and they practice on the, the practice uh, and getting, uh, you know, their game up to snuff, they're not really practicing with any sort of purpose. And then a lot of times they confuse practice with actually just warming up before a round. So there's that component. And then what should we think they be focusing on or what should they be doing differently than maybe what some of them are doing now when it comes to actually course management? Talk about what course management is um, for, for the average golfer and what they can learn. Again, maybe something from the pros they can learn on how to manage themselves out in the golf course. But talk about the differences between um, sort of a full-blown practice session and just warming up before a round. Absolutely. Um, with a lot of uh, my students, I try and create a, a practice schedule for, for, for let's say, a month. And I, I think having a plan before you get to the golf course on what you're going to work on, um, I think that's a key um, element first off. Um, and, and also when we're at the range, don't, don't practice the perfect situations because unfortunately when you get out on the golf course, you're not going to face those, those situations. Um, to, to me, I think we're, we're trying to kind of transfer our learning in the sense of being uh, cognitive at the beginning, but then playing kind of this unstoppable golf uh, as we become more autonomous and used to what we're, we're doing out there. What I what right. I try and do with my students is um, if we're if we're working on short game, um, mix it up. I, I try and kind of create these these 15 minute windows where once we've done something for say 10 15 minutes, we move on to another shot and we keep moving around, um, mixing up the targets so we're not going at the same targets all the time. Um, I think that's a, that's a key thing for us um, as well. Um, but also, um, what I would tend to do is with a student, if we're working on impact, we'll do a lot of chipping and pitching first. I'm a big believer that if we can't do it with a small swing, um, there's, right. there's no sense in trying to do it with a big swing first. Um, and then we would work on putting separately. Um, try and try and kind of make it to the point where we're touching on everything and we're not uh, shying away from the things we don't like. Um, I'm a big believer that right. in order for, in order for mm-hmm. us to get better, we've got to we've got to maintain what we're good at, but then also really kind of accelerate our, our focus on the things we're not good at um, as well. But yeah, um, for me, I think it's 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 important to have uh, a time at the end of your practice session to kind of switch it more into what you would do on the golf course. I think we we see a lot of mm-hmm. people just hit balls on the range for the sake of hitting and. We call them rakers because right. they're just just whacking ball after ball. Yep. But once we've kind of got through a, a, a practice session, I'll have them play at least one or two holes on the uh, the range, uh, mimicking what they would do on the first two holes of the golf course. And I think that's that mm-hmm. can that can really help get them into a, a playing rhythm. 
Um, there's no sense in trying to get get on the range and hit balls frantically and then realize that once you're on the golf course, you can't maintain that pace as well. So I think that's a that's definitely a key key element to it as well. But um, in terms of preparation on the, the golf course itself, um, I think a lot of your listeners are either members of golf courses or they play a specific golf course um, on a regular basis. Just like the tour players, mm-hmm. I think uh, I think it's important to create a, a book or a yardage chart or even take notes of how you would play. Um, so every time that you're out there, you can either adjust your plan or at least you're prepared to, to take on that specific hole at any given time. Yeah, you know, that's one thing that, you know, Jack Nicholas famously did was he had very, very good course management skills. And when he went out uh, and played any given round, you know, it wasn't that he was the best ball striker or he hit it the farthest necessarily on the PGA tour. It was how he navigated himself and how he managed his game on the golf course. Uh, you know, he hit bad shots just like everybody else did. Um, but he knew how to handle his misses, um, you know, when need to. And he also knew how to get himself out of difficult situations and how to avoid those situations. And uh, again, putting those, those, that information together on, uh, you know, some sort of a, a score sheet, if you will, or uh, into a, even a, taking some notes uh, as you play uh, along the way can be very, very valuable. Those are things that you can be looking at not only on your own, but the next time you, you know, connect with your, your teaching pro or your coach, those are some things, information that they can find very valuable as well. Um, and just one real quick thing I want to mention and just get your thoughts on this. Another area too is, and and maybe you can, again, just give us a guide as to how you deal with your students, but um, sort of a warm up, if you will, before the round. Uh, This is something that, you know, a lot of amateurs really struggle with is first off, they're not allowing themselves enough time before they are getting ready to tee off to really do a a good warm up. Um, But more importantly, what they often end up doing is tinkering around with their game at that point. And that's really, I would think you would agree is a no, no you're there really just to warm up, just to kind of get things loosened up in preparation. Uh, and so during that warm up session, what is a reasonable time? I know everybody is on a tight schedule these days, but if you're going to advise somebody, how early should they get there before their tea time? Um, and what should they be focusing on in their warm up? Absolutely. So um, I'm a firm believer that we we should get there if you're, if you're serious about playing good golf that day about an hour before your tee time, which I know, again, a lot of us are under time constraints mm-hmm. and things like that. But um, being able to, to touch on kind of the, the key areas that you're going to face on the golf course is, is, is pretty important. So I, I always insist I, I kind of have a 15-15-15 rule with, with people. The first mm-hmm. 15 minutes we're going to spend is going to be putting. So we'll do leg putt drills. I'm not getting into the mechanics. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think right. a lot of times you'll see people on the putting green and they'll put to a, a hole that's 40 or 50 feet away. Well, if you, if you keep missing that target, it's going to certainly kind of have an effect on your confidence that you're you're not going to play well that day. But mm-hmm. putting has got to be key first, I think. Um, then I would get into chipping and pitching. Um, again, that mimics what impact would be with a, a full swing. Um, and I'm, I'm a big believer of, of using kind of one swing when it comes to chipping, but then using different clubs like wedges, mm-hmm. stand, uh, nine iron sevens to figure out your role. 
just so you're getting a, yep. a sense of the pace of the greens for when it comes to, to chipping. Um, every day is going to be a little bit different. You might have a day where it rained the day before, and so the greens are not going to react the same way. But just trying to get a sense of how the ball's reacting, but also how much roll you're going to get with those certain clubs when you chip. And then really spend the last, uh, the, the, the next 15 minutes, uh, just go through a brief stretching routine I do with students. It takes about a minute. And then really just start to, to work into a full swing. We'll hit a few wedges, um, a few mid-irons, a few hybrids, uh, a couple of drives. And then the last minute, the last five minutes, I try and get students to, to play the first hole in their head so they're, they're ready to get to the tee on time. I know that leaves an extra 15 minutes to the end, but if, if we need to, to kind of get ourselves organized before we get to the first tee, um, we can do it in kind of a manner where we're not racing around and, and rushing to get somewhere. Right. Um, and in a perfect world, Alex, ideally we would love our students to be able to do that, <laughs> but unfortunately right. in, in today's world, that's not going to happen. So let's give a down and dirty version of, of what you just said. Sure, so for those that, that don't allow them, yeah, yeah, let's do the, yeah, exactly. Let's do the accelerated version because we know darn well that not everybody's going to show up an hour early. So you know, let's say, let's, you know, you can use an example, 20 minutes or what have you. Let's do the down dirty version. Yeah, no, so I think, I think obviously like putting is key. You can spend five minutes as a certain drill that I do where we really work on rhythm and tempo with a putting stroke and we just calibrate mm -hmm. how many steps we, uh, we're going to hit um, certain lengths of swings. I do it in four-step increments, so figure out how far, oh, how big of the swing needs to feel for four, eight, 12, and 16. Um, if that was the only thing we could do, that would be a huge advantage because there's nothing worse playing the first hole perfectly and then three putting because your first putt wasn't close. Um, I would spend mm -hmm. another five minutes maybe um, chipping and pitching, um, get over to the range, still stretch because you're still not quite ready body-wise uh, to be flexible to, to mm -hmm. make any aggressive swings. And then similar thing if you've got, say, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, um, again, build up to a, a full swing, pick different targets, different clubs, but really work on a pre-shot routine if you, if you can. Uh, you don't need to hit a million balls, but you need to kind of get your, your, your mindset to, to play golf that, that time. And, you know, giving somebody 10, 15 minutes can go one of two ways. They can be methodical and, and go through their routine, or they can see a big bucket of balls as an opportunity to, to hit as many as they can in a, a short period of time. I think that the key is, right. is trying to build a rhythm and a, a cadence with your body to, to be able to mm -hmm. play golf and, and, and keep everything within rhythm. Right. And I think also too, what the warm up session does is not only get you prepared um, for the, the upcoming round, but it also is a great way to assess where is my game today? What, am, what you know, what am I bringing to the golf course today? Am I, you know, is my driver not, uh, you know, doing very well? Should I leave it in the bag and maybe scale back to a three wood or, or some other option? Um, and, you know, am I not, uh, you know, not maybe another area of my game that's not as sharp as it could be, that's not the time to be tinkering around and making adjustments. Um, and, and if you look at most of the players, um, pretty much I would say all the players on the tours, um, that's essentially what they're doing. Obviously, they're, they're much more proficient at all of these areas of the game, but that's what they're doing is they're looking at, okay, what, how am I feeling today? How, am I, how is things reacting today? And I know what I, you know, I'm not making physical adjustments um, at this point, I'm going to do that after the round. They're looking to see where their game is at. And that's something really the amateurs need to do as well, correct? 
Absolutely. Um, from personal experience, I've hit it amazing on the driving range and gone out and played lousy, and I've yep. been on the range <laughs> and not had not felt like I had it, but then gone out and played well. I think we going back to the different situations. If you're going to practice and you're not playing that day, that's that's the time to work on things. Um, but if you sure. are going heading to the range right before you round, it it is purely just to warm up. But as we mentioned earlier, being able to create a a, a book or a, a game plan for that golf course, I think that takes a lot of stress away and kind of puts you at ease a, a little mm-hmm. bit. I I use the the goofy analogy of if you if you're watching your favorite football team, uh, whether it's college or NFL, and they're driving down inside the ten. They look over to the coach, and the coach is like, "I don't know, just just go ahead and wing it." That doesn't happen. That they have a plan, and I think no. uh, I think right. most golfers need to have a plan, uh, and not just for best case scenario, but if if things do go wrong, um, what can you do to to kind of keep it going? Uh, one thing I, I do try and develop with some of my my better players is to have a go to shot if uh, if you can't mm-hmm. hit your driver. I think we cast a mind bag not too long ago, but Tiger would always hit that stinger three wood because if his driver yep. wasn't quite working. But um, I think it's key to, to have a, a club that you can rely on that will keep you in play and and uh, just keep you moving forward. Yeah, it's you know it's funny you mentioned that because uh, earlier in the program tonight I actually mentioned that very thing that, you know, Tiger had that stinger shot that he often used. And, um, you know, when his driver was not at its best, um, and even when he was playing, sometimes there were certain holes that that was the better play. And again, that falls under course management, knowing your, your conditions that you're uh, faced with and, and how to handle it. Sometimes it's not always smart to, to bring out the driver. Um, maybe you need to hit a, uh, you know, a longer iron or a hybrid club or something, or even a fairway wood uh, to get yourself and keep you in position. Um, finally, let's wrap up with another area. You know, we all want to elevate our game. And you talk about uh, the five stats that you need to know uh, in order to accomplish that, what are those stats and why are they important? Well, a lot of those stats I think are I, I look at shore game wise. I think when we look at the, the the obvious stats out there in terms of driving distance that we look say on the PGA Tour, I I, I try to not look at mm-hmm. the number one player. Um, the stats typically cover the the top 200 players um, on tour, and when you look at their their driving average, um, it's right around 277 off the tee. Um, that's great. I mean, mm-hmm. the average golfer is not going to, unfortunately, get that close to that. Um, I think the uh, the average driver distance that most amateurs hit is right around 235. So we've got to mm-hmm. we've got to start looking at driver accuracy. Um, the average average players on tour are hitting the the, the fairways about 60% of the time. That kind of surprised me. I thought it would be a higher number, but. Um, you can still score really well um, by just keep, keeping the ball um, in the fairway. Uh, greens and regulation, I think, are a key as well. Um, you start to look at, again, the averages that we see on the tour, about 67%. So two out of three, they're, they're getting on the green, but they have to rely on their short game a lot. And that's why I look at um, short game stats more than anything, because if players are not getting up and down and scrambling, um, they're not making the, the cut on the weekend and, and playing golf. So being able to, to scramble around the greens, um, total putts, things like that um, are, are definitely important. And those are areas, depending on the, 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 the student that I'm working with, it's, it's pretty easy to take a 20-something handicap down to low teens or even single digits by foc- focusing on some of the, the stats. And I'm a big believer in putting the, putting the responsibility on, on golfers that I work with to know their stats. 
Um, a common one mm-hmm. is asking how many putts per round they have. Um, I think if you were able to two-putt every single green, that would be a really good average for, for most golfers. But the tour average is right around 28 putts per round. And so right. that, that's a misleading stat because they do miss a lot of greens. Um, so they have to be proficient when it comes to getting up and down and, and things like that. Taking somebody who's three-putting three or four times a round and you can get them down to 36 or 34 pretty quickly – um, that all of a sudden is going to have a greater effect on their scores versus driver distance and accuracy and, and things like that. So um, definitely definitely want to keep the ball in play, but we also want to be able to finish the hole off correctly as well. Yeah, and, and just to, to you know touch on that point a little bit more, you know, Tiger's a great example when you look at him in the early 2000s when he was really uh, on top of his game. Um, you know, when you look at some of his stats, uh, his driving accuracy was really not that great. I mean, he would hit it a mile, but I can remember a lot of tournaments where he was hitting out of the rough or, or sometimes even in an adjacent fairway. Um, but his short game and his recovery shots, much like Nick's, was so spot on um, that he was able to, I mean, I can remember, uh, I don't know the year off the top of my head, but it was, uh, I think it was the uh, at the Buick. And he was uh, in the rough, and I think he hit a six iron and hit a fade and cut it out and ended up, you know, 10 feet from the hole. Um, And people were just, you know, baffled of that. So, you know, obviously you want to try and keep it in play and you want to get it out in the fairway. So, again, maybe instead of hitting your driver, uh, a fairway would or or some other option might be the way to go if you're not hitting your driver particularly well. Um, But that's a, a case, if you will, for really having a tight short game because that can save, especially on the putting uh, surface. If you can, as you suggested, you know, in your in your practice sessions, to be really working on your leg putting and 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 getting the speed and the distance down. Um, the direction is actually the easy part. Once you have your speed and your distance down, um, you know, you can pretty much take that to any course, and then it's just a matter of you know aiming accordingly. But um, if you don't have that, and this is something that we see a lot of times. And Alex, I know you've seen it, where you know people don't really practice the right things. They get out there in the golf course. And, you know, they get on the green and the first putt is either way short or way long. So then they overcompensate the next time around. And it's, you know, the opposite to that. And it's, again, because they don't know the speeds of the greens because they're not practicing the right thing. So, um, again, another case to, to really be focusing on your short game because that's where you're going to score um, uh, the least amount of strokes. Um, Alex, I want to give you an opportunity. It's hard to believe, but, boy, this hour has just blown by. Um, it is I want to give you an opportunity. <laughs> yeah, it is. I know there's a few minutes left here, but uh, by the time we wrap up, it'll it'll come to the end. But um, the, before we do wrap up, I want to give you an opportunity uh, to maybe share with the listeners. I know you're, I believe, up in uh, Colorado right now. So if uh, while you're up there, particularly those folks that <clears throat> may be in the area that want to reach out to you, what's the best way to do that? And then when do you transition? When do you head back down to uh, Scottsdale, back to Camelback? Sure. No, uh, thank you. Um, no, the best way is, um, so I'm actually at the, it's called the Glacier Club in Durango, uh, Colorado. So we're in the southwest corner of Colorado itself. It's a, a beautiful golf course that's, um, you're guaranteed to hit the golf ball further because we're at 
um, about 8,000 feet elevation. So it's definitely feel-good oh, wow. golf up here. Um, yeah, <laughs> you can guarantee at least a, a good 10% or so. But, no, you, you can certainly uh, contact us through our website here. I'm here for about another three, uh, about three, three and a half weeks, and then I go back down to the, the hot heat of, of Scottsdale and um, back at Camelback Golf Club there. And uh, we'll be teaching basically starting uh, September 14th. So um, back in the heat there and looking forward to being back. And then how long do you stay in uh, Arizona? When do you then transition, go back up to Colorado usually? Sure. I feel I'm very fortunate to be able to, to, to do this and be in two places. Uh, my season up here in Colorado runs from mid-May to right after Labor Day weekend, so about the second week of September. And then I start right, right. back up in Scottsdale and uh, mid-September through mid-May and uh Okay. Yeah, I'm very fortunate to be at, at two world-class facilities. Um, it, it sounds braggadocious, but they, they are pretty nice. Um, <laughs> we've got 36 holes at both courses, and, uh, yeah, life is good. Life right now is very good. Thank you. Well, you know what? It's all right to brag a little bit. Um, this is a great game, and, you know, we're very, very fortunate during this difficult time right now with, with obviously, the, this uh, global pandemic uh, golf is one of the very few uh, games uh, slash sports um, that that seems to have a built-in social distance right right in it. So we're we're very very fortunate, and uh, you know a lot of folks that you know maybe typically are not used to or have never played this game before are getting exposed to it. So I hope as an industry, um, not just from the teacher professional side, but an overall industry, I hope that we take full advantage of this and really make a lot of these folks that are coming out for the first time. Uh, I'm sure you're seeing it at your locations, uh, and we'll continue to see it as we transition through this this process. But um, seeing folks for the very first time that maybe typically don't go out to the golf course, but I've you know, taken that route because of our circumstances and uh, not having anything else to do. So I hope we, we really capitalize on this and really make them feel welcome. But um, Alex, I want to thank you for, for coming on uh, Golf Talk Live. It's been a pleasure. And uh, I enjoyed having you on the show and, and sharing uh, some of your knowledge and, and your experience with the listeners. And I'm really looking forward to having you jump in uh, on uh, some future panel discussions on Coach's Corner. I think you'll enjoy that as well. We always have a lot of fun. And I'm going to send a, a special shout-out to John Hughes, who I know you know very well. Um, for I do, yeah. Uh, connecting us. Yeah for, yeah, for connecting us. He was actually on uh, before you were, coincidentally, tonight and uh, uh, gave a little shout-out for you. And um, uh, so thank you, John, for, uh, for connecting Alex and I. And, and I look forward to you uh, coming back uh, on the show with, uh, with the, the gang on Coach's Corner. So have a, no, have a great, great weekend. I... And... Go ahead. Sorry. Oh, no, I was just going to say I, I really appreciate the opportunity. Um, I've been a big fan of the show, and, and to be part of it, I, I feel very fortunate. So I'm looking forward to, to, to being part of it again uh, sometime soon. Yeah, it's. Uh, yeah, I don't have the date in front of me, but I think in the next uh, few weeks you're going to be on the panel discussion. So we'll have a good time. Everybody does, and and I look forward to uh, having you throw uh, your hat in the ring, as they say, and uh, and offering some some great uh, discussion there. So, Alex, again, have a have a great weekend. I'm actually going to be speaking to you tomorrow uh, on a, on a private call, <laughs> but um, but uh, I'm just saying have a good weekend just for the sake of, of closing off the show. But thank you very much for joining uh, me tonight again on Golf Talk Live. I really appreciate it, and uh, I'll talk to you in the morning. Sounds great. We'll look forward to it. Have a great night. All right. Yeah, you too. Bye-bye. All right, that was my very special guest. Uh, to close out the show, Alex Fisher, 
director of instruction uh, currently uh, up in uh, the southern, southern part of uh, Colorado at Glacier Club. And then, as he said, in a few weeks, he'll be uh, uh, navigating his way. He and his uh, lovely wife, Mary, will be navigating down to uh, the uh, JW Camelback Golf Club in Scottsdale, Arizona uh, for the winter months. Um, as he said, uh, he's bragging a little bit to world-class uh, locations. And uh, if you're interested, you can reach out to both of those locations on their websites. You'll find his information there and uh, you can contact him directly if you're interested, if you're going to be visiting in the area or if you want to uh, uh, just connect with him. It's a great way to do that. Uh, once again, I want to thank John Hughes and Pete Buchanan uh, for coming on earlier on the Coach's Corner panel. Thank you very much, guys, as always, uh, for bringing your best. And I look forward to uh, seeing you guys on a future uh, panel discussion as well. All right, guys, again, uh, go to golftipsmag.com. Subscribe to the magazine. It's a great publication. I know you'll enjoy uh, the many great tips from uh, some of the top 25 instructors uh, in the magazine, as well as some interesting articles as well. So go to golftipsmag.com and subscribe today. It's a great deal. And uh, if you're uh, wanting to pick up uh, a single issue, you can go to uh, virtually any newsstand in the country and in Canada. Uh, Barnes & Noble and Books a Million are two of the larger chains that carry the magazine. Uh, you can get them there as well. So make sure you check it out. On that note, thank you everybody for tuning in tonight's show. I look forward to seeing you next week right here on Golf Talk Live. God bless everybody. Thanks for listening to this evening's broadcast of Golf Talk Live. Remember to tune in each week at blogtalkradio.com forward slash golf talk live. If you can't join us live, check out the on-demand section for previously aired broadcasts or listen on any of the following social media platforms, iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, CastBox, TalkStream Live, and of course, Spotify. To get updates on future shows and upcoming guests, be sure to visit the show's Facebook page, Golf Talk Live blog. You can also follow me on Twitter at Ted and Buck CEO. Remember to join me live each week for another great broadcast of Golf Talk Live. See you next time. This has been a production of the iGolf Sports Network.